0: we have come now to the very heart of the Bible, the very heart of the Gospel message. What we've just heard. One time Saint Paul wrote to a group of Christians. He said, I'm determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and what? And Him crucified. Now If we can understand what is happening here in Mark 15, we understand why Paul would say just that. The meaning of the cross is the most wonderful and the most awesome truth of all time. We think back through the last 24 hours in the life of Jesus. The gospels tell us about the last supper and Jesus' agonizing prayer in the garden the disciples falling to sleep on him, his betrayal by Judas, the being hauled before the religious leaders, uh, being then hauled before Pilate for the mockery of a trial. Shameful, cowardly exchange for Barabbas and Jesus' long exhausting climb up the hill until he could no longer carry the cross he dropped and then the stripping of his clothing being nailed upon the cross and at last being raised up his bloodied uh, battered body on the cross lifted up before all of his persecutors and the bewildered crowd the hardened soldiers all these things have happened now up to this moment All, all things so terribly wicked and so evil so unanticipated that the Son of God could be so brutalized and mocked and scorned. Honestly, we cannot help but ask the question where is God? I mean, we would think, we would expect that God would at some point step in and bring all this horror to an end. Surely this is the most unjust thing that could ever happen to God's Son, but we don't see God. He's silent. He doesn't appear to be present in any way. Where is God in all of this? We see Jesus and the consummation of his life on the cross. We see the centurion and his unexpected uh, important confession at the foot of the cross. And finally, we see the group of women and the grief and confusion in their minds as they stood at a distance from the cross. But where is God Mark does tell us, let me explain. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever thought that at the day of the birth of the Son of God, the black night sky was brightly illuminated by the star? But at the death of the Son of God, the bright light of the noonday sun was turned to blackness. Not an eclipse, not a thick windstorm, Not heavy clouds, just epic darkness that lasted three hours. No light at all. Now, what is this darkness? I always thought, as I pondered this this week, I always thought that the darkness was somehow symbolic of the fact that all of nature even was ashamed. And that all of creation, even the sun in the sky, had turned away at the cosmic injustice of it all. Well, what I realized this week, I had not seen before, is that the darkness is in fact the presence of God. God is in the midst of the darkness. Now, how do we know that? Well, throughout the Bible, God shows himself in many ways. He doesn't just show himself in words and light and smoke and fire, but sometimes God reveals himself in darkness, like when he spoke to Abraham and that Solemn uh, covenantal ceremony, or or when he spoke to Moses on Sinai. Mostly we see God in the darkness in the Bible when God has come in judgment, just as he did in Israel when he came in, in Egypt when he came in judgment on the Egyptians. Many of the prophets speak about the darkness. Of God coming in judgment. They speak about the day of the Lord, the day of God's divine judgment. For instance, Amos 5, why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? Or Amos 8, again, in a vision, that it sounds so eerily like Good Friday, Amos said, In that day declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make that time like morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. When the prophets speak about the day of the Lord, they're describing the day when God comes in judgment and pours out his righteous punishment on sinful mankind, a day of terrifying darkness and lament. The day that those who have refused to honor God are cast into hell. You remember Jesus had described hell, it was Matthew 8, he had described hell as an eternal experience of darkness. Remember those words about the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth? But what no one except Christ alone could ever begin to fathom was that on behalf of those who love him, Christ would take upon himself all the judgment and horror of hell. And that's what's happening here. A suffocating paralyzing darkness that indicates the wrath of God is falling. But falling upon whom? It's falling on the sinless son of God. Between Noon and three in the afternoon, the Lord Jesus is taking the full brunt of God's punishment upon himself. We've already heard how the prophets foretold it. We just heard that remarkable passage from Isaiah 53, and at the end it says this, quote, It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The Lord made his life to be an offering for sin. But I I don't think anyone really understood that except Jesus, what that meant and what the darkness meant, God coming in judgment. Remember, he called it the cup of wrath. He knew better than anyone that our sin is a much more serious rebellion against God, more awful than we realize, and that the absolute holiness of God required that all sin be punished And he had come as the perfect sinless man to bear the judgment of God in our place. To take on himself all the accumulated punishment that those of us who have and those who will come to love him have deserved for our every rebellious thought and deed. Every shameful time we have sinned against one another, every time we have spurned the righteous will of God or ignored the pain or the need of another person every careless word every self-centered thought we here who have now turned by grace to Christ and found God's forgiveness we can do that only because Christ faced the judgment in our place and that is what happened in this awful three hours of darkness now look I understand If you find this confusing, it does raise so many questions. Many people find this idea of the Son of God dying for our sins to be wholly unacceptable, absurd, primitive. And the theologians have pondered this, argued, prayed, seeking to gain a deeper insight into How exactly are we to understand it all? What really is happening with Christ on the cross that day? Honestly, it is so much bigger than we can really understand. But there's one thing for sure. The essential center of Christianity is that Christ's death on the cross has enabled us to be put into a right relationship with God. That's it. He made it possible that those who love and trust in him might be forgiven anything and welcomed into the family of God and live forever. You know, Christianity is many things, but at the heart of it, this is what it is. C.S. Lewis once said, We were told that Christ was killed for us, that his death has washed out our sins, and that by dying... He disabled death itself. That's the formula. That's Christianity. That's what has to be believed. Any theories we build up as to how Christ's death did this, he said, well, the theories are quite secondary. So, it's not that God was absent that day. He was present in the darkness. And he was pouring out hell upon the only one who could be our substitute. And the Lord Jesus knew all along that this was coming. It was, above all else, the reason that Jesus came. I believe Jesus knew that he would experience the complete absence of his heavenly Father for some time on the cross. And that must have been almost unthinkable for him. Because the Son of God had been in constant loving relationship with God the Father forever since before the beginning of time. There'd never been a time when he was not able to see and share with his Father, not until right now. I mean, you know that the longer you love someone who is dear to you, the greater the pain when you lose that person. Jesus Christ and his father had experienced an eternity of perfect love until this moment. Three hours of utter aloneness. But then his pathetic cry at three in the afternoon as the darkness has lifted. It just makes me wonder if, he's, if he had not somehow been hoping that after the terror of punishment he would then again begin to sense the presence of his heavenly father, but he didn't, not until sometime later, we don't know. And when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice, you might not notice this, but that's the only time in all the gospels that Jesus doesn't refer to God as his father, but he calls him my God. And He says it twice with the deepest feeling. He's longing for a father's comfort, but there's no comfort in hell. He was utterly abandoned by God. I guess we all know that uh, just a few days ago, this uh, very young Wall Street Journal reporter, Evan Gerskovich, was arrested and has been imprisoned in the terrible Lefortovo prison in Moscow, and I was reading this week that it's famous for being among the most brutal and isolating of prisons anywhere. The article said that that prison was designed, quote, to make prisoners feel abandoned. And there, that that young man is cut off from all others, and he's utterly alone. It's so very hard for us to imagine It must be unthinkably painful for him. Pray pray for him, Evan, that he will know the presence of God in that lonely place and that he would be freed. It's a senseless, pointless, and unjust cruelty. But it's not to be compared with what Jesus experienced. On the cross, we see perfect love, love for us in Jesus' sacrifice. And, and, and we see perfect obedience again for us. And, and everything is somehow suspended there at that moment when he cries out in his forsakenness. And then after a while, it comes to an end. He, he uttered a loud cry. Verse 37 says he breathed his last, uttered a loud cry. And Luke and John in their gospels tell us what Jesus cried. Jesus said, you remember, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he finally said, it is finished. Forever it is and will be finished. Mark says, as Sam read to us just a moment ago, Mark says that Jesus screamed it out across the hillside. And everybody there heard him. Somehow he still had enough strength for that. It reminds us that, do you remember how earlier uh, Jesus had told the disciples that no one can take my life from me unless I willingly give it up? And that's what was happening at that moment. Now that time had come. He had finished his work. He had done what only he could do. But he was still in command in spite of the most unimaginable pain. But now, at last, he was ready to give himself up over to death and you got to think that for those people who were present it was a moment charged with emotion it was stunning it was earth-shaking literally it was Matthew tells us in Matthew 27 5 that the earth shook and rocks split and tombs broke open at that moment now all the Jews knew that earthquake and darkness was symbolic of God's judgment and at that moment, finally, I won't read it to you, but all the jeering and the mocking and the taunting stopped. And I think it's important to try to imagine ourselves there and how we would have felt. I remember so well when I was eleven years old. My sister came in one night about nine or nine thirty and threw herself on my mother's bed, and I happened to be in the parents' bedroom. And she had been to a service like this, and she had heard the story of the cross. And for the first time in her life, she understood as best she could what the Lord Jesus actually went through and why. And as she was trying to tell her mother about it, she just began to weep. I've never forgotten that. And that's when Christ became more important. Than anything else to my sister. Still is. These descriptions of earthquake and darkness, it's not poetry. <laughs> Everybody present experienced these horrors. And at the same moment, over on the Temple Mount, Mark says something extraordinary happened. Let me just read it again. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. (laughs) In the heart of the temple, you probably know, there was a nearly inaccessible room. The holiest space known as the Holy of Holies. And it represented the presence of the living God. It was closed off by a massive, thick, heavy curtain, 60 feet high. No one dared approach, no one was worthy, no one was pure enough to be admitted to that space. That curtain meant that under the old covenant, the presence of God was closed off to all people. And only on the holiest day of the year, on the day of atonement, a heavy cloud of Incense was directed into that room, making it nearly impossible to see anything, and the holiest person among the Hebrews, the high priest, would reverently, fearfully offer a blood sacrifice there before God to beg God's forgiveness on behalf of the people. But no priest was worthy, and no sacrifice was good enough ultimately to atone for our sins. Until that very moment when the Son of God became both our high priest and our sacrificial lamb. That's what the tearing of the curtain from top to bottom meant. Who ripped that curtain apart? God ripped it apart to show us that Christ's offering of himself for our sins opened the way into the heart of God. The old hymn says that, There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good, that we might go at last to heaven saved by his precious blood. There there would be no more sacrifices now. When Jesus said it is finished, he didn't just mean the work His work on the cross was finished, but the old covenant is over now. The temple is obsolete. It would soon be destroyed, never rebuilt. The priesthood is abolished. No more sacrifices. Now access to God and acceptance and cleansing, now becoming adopted as God's son or daughter. Life with God, it's all open to us now. And, and that's what all of Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10 is about. Wonderful chapters. So then, we try to move to a close now. Mark then just barely mentions two other things that happened that afternoon. And to me, they are his way of saying that from this moment on, things will be very different. Verse 39 when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Now here's a hardened Roman soldier, a man who had worked his way up a ladder in a rough military setting to become a centurion, so experienced and so reliable that he oversees and directs a company of a hundred hardened crack-fighting men, and, and he's the one all day long, he's been at the center of these events, called into action by the governor to take over the actual process and see that Christ is crucified. He was there watching when his men mocked Christ, stripped him, made sport of him, crowning him with the thorns, parading him around in a purple robe. He had observed Jesus all morning, had heard everything, had seen everything, he must have seen countless men die, but never anything like this. Somehow the man Jesus seemed completely in charge and yet refused to retaliate, refused to use his power to save himself. And so the centurion had heard that hardened criminal hanging beside Christ call out to the Messiah had heard and beg Jesus to mercifully accept him and take him as he entered heaven and he heard Jesus promise of paradise to that poor man and then he had experienced the total darkness the quiet the awesomeness the fearfulness of it he heard Christ's victorious shout at the end and and he felt the earth trembling violently and I guess at that moment he simply couldn't remain silent anymore And he came in that moment to an unexpected conclusion. Something was happening to this soldier that he couldn't keep to himself. As Luke tells the story, Luke records an amazing detail. Luke said that the centurion began praising Christ. And then he said, as was read to everyone present, certainly this man was innocent. Truly this was the Son of God. Who would have ever imagined that the first one to pass through that curtain to the presence of God would be a cynical old soldier? So do you see what's happening on the cross? The way to God has been opened up. First, to a criminal uh, viewed as so wicked and dangerous that he had been sentenced to death by the state, a man everybody had given up on, And now, next, a pagan soldier, not a Jew, a Gentile, a man who had no background of faith in the one true God, a man of war and violence, the very man who had crucified Jesus. For him, it was just another day's work. And now that man has become a believer. Now, three hours earlier, neither of these things were even thinkable. And yet, now the grace of Christ is extended to the unlikeliest Of people and then the last thing Mark tells us I won't read it you heard it he tells us about the little group of women who were at a distance where were the men where were the Apostles it appears that none of the Apostles were there now the men they aren't mentioned (laughs) only the The only disciples that are mentioned, Mark mentions, were this group of women. Two of them, at least, were mothers of apostles. And then Mary Magdalene, who had been uh, healed by Jesus, saved from demons. Maybe there were other women. They had been following Jesus, Mark says, helping him and serving him since the earliest days in Galilee. Why were they looking from afar? Why does he say that? Because it was dangerous for women to be so near but also wouldn't it wouldn't it have been just completely unbearable unthinkable for these women to come close to blood soaked men gruesomely naked hanging in the air so these women were desperately confused they were broken hearted they they could only bear to look on from afar but they were there And later on, they would join Joseph of Arimathea at Jesus' burial. And then two days later, you know, they came back to anoint the body. Mark uses a very special word to describe their ministry to Jesus over the last two or three years. It's the same word he used to describe how the angels came to minister to Jesus in the wilderness. He's telling us they became like angels in their care and love of the Lord. Now, you know, how often the women have been seen as less important or less capable of serving Christ, yet it was one of these women who Jesus singled out rather than any of the men to be the first witness of the resurrection, to be the first proclaimer of the resurrection. Is it Mark telling us that in the kingdom of God now things have changed? First, the thief on the cross tells us how wicked, hardened criminals can receive mercy, can be redeemed, can be forgiven in Christ, even those that are on death row. And next, in describing the centurion's faith, the family of God is opened up to people of all ethnicities, all races, all cultures, traditions, different religious, secular backgrounds. The good news is for any who will hear it and receive it, and then in speaking of this group of confused and broken-hearted women he's not only affirming women are are equal to often better than men in faith but also that god i believe mark is saying that god sees and loves us for our faithful presence and service even when we may be confused or brokenhearted or fearful or ashamed or shut down or silent, feeling powerless to say or do anything for the Lord. As long as we are looking to Christ in love, even if it is from a distance, we belong to him. Let me just close with a little story that I'm sure some of you have heard me tell before. I think this story is probably based on fact. It's about an archbishop of Paris preaching to a great congregation. In the midst of his preaching, three young, footloose men, worldly, godless, wandered into the cathedral one day earlier. Two of them wagered the third that he would not have the nerve to go into the confessional booth and make a bogus confession. So he accepted the wager. And the priest who was listening realized what was happening. So when the pretending penitent had finished, the priest said, To every confession there is a penance. You see that great crucifix over there? Go over to it kneel down and repeat three times as you look into the face of the crucified, all this you did for me and I don't care a damn. That young man emerged from the confessional box to report what had happened and to claim his wager from his companions and they said, oh no, first complete the penance and then we'll pay you the wager. So as the story was told walking slowly to the great crucifix he knelt down and looking into the face he began all this you did for me and I and he couldn't finish it tears flooded to his eyes his heart was torn by real repentance and there his old life ended And his new life began. The old archbishop was telling that story in his sermon. And at the end, he said, I was that young man. Now, we need to quietly ponder and pray before the cross. And here's what I want you to be assured of as we pray. There is no sacrifice, there's no moral achievement, nothing you or I can do to justify ourselves before God for the countless times we have offended and failed God. There's no way we can overstate the seriousness of our sin. And there's no way we can make ourselves acceptable to a holy God. But understand this, there is nothing, no failure, no crime, no lie, no harm, no neglect, no act of hatred, nothing in your life or my life, no hidden blackness that cannot be forgiven by God because of the cross. And when once we kneel before the cross and we pour out our hearts to God, asking His mercy, asking His help, asking that the blood of Christ wash us and cleanse and purify us, and asking Jesus to have us, and to enter into us and make us new people, useful in his world. From that holy moment on, he is with you. You may not feel close to him. You may even at times, like those women, feel distant from him. Confused or broken hearted. But there is nothing, no failure, no fear, no enemies, no hardship, not even death will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. That's the heart of the gospel. And how are we to respond to it? I suggest we take a minute and we sit quietly or even maybe kneel down for a few moments and simply ponder one characteristic of God or one thing about Christ that we see on Good Friday that most speaks to you tonight in your heart and and let that settle into your soul maybe it's his holiness maybe it's his faithfulness maybe it's his nearness maybe it's his promise to forgive maybe it's his justice and his promise to punish the unrepentant to right every wrong whatever you are seeing when you look at the cross ponder it, pray into it and then let that lead you In some step that seems best for you, maybe confession, maybe thanksgiving or praise, maybe submission, giving over to him uh, fear or anxiety or confusion or giving over your future or simply putting your trust in some promise that you need. Let's be quiet for a moment and pray and then I'll close for us. nothing in our hand we bring, simply to your cross we cling. Naked, we come to you for dress. Helpless, we come to you for grace. We bring nothing but ourselves, but we receive everything in Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen.